All right, well, I mentioned earlier how the text in the bulletin is wrong. It's not from Matthew chapter 9. Today, we're going to turn to Numbers chapter 13. And it's going to be easy to find. I'll give you some time to get there. But it's the fourth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So turn with me today to Numbers chapter 13. As we have a message today, as we mentioned earlier, talking about how we should be eternal optimists. And the examples that have been given to us with Juanita and her birthday, and of Lori's reference to how she was very optimistic in letting Juanita know that, yeah, she's turned another day older, another year older, but she's still younger than John and Dan. So that was finding something optimistic for her mom. It didn't help you guys in any way, but it surely helped Juanita. All right, and it gave me another great example to use as we talk about eternal optimism, because the question for us today, as you land now in Numbers 13, is are you an optimist person? I mean, an optimist person is one who finds a glass. If there's a glass of water sitting here, is it half full or is it half empty? The optimist sees it as half full. The pessimist would see it as half empty. An optimist is a person who is maybe on the 20th floor that falls somehow out of the building. But the optimist in him, as he's falling down at the third floor, he still says, so far, so good. Of course, you know, he still has three stories to go. A pessimist, on the other hand, is a guy who, in a dark room, blows out the candle just to prove how dark the room really is. That's a pessimistic view. So in the reading today, we choose number 13 because we're going to have examples of men who we can view as optimists, and of men who we can also view then as being pessimists. It's a story, as we begin to read, that you're familiar with most likely. It involves 12 men, they're known as spies, who are sent by Moses, commissioned to look upon the land. As we look and find that Joshua and Caleb, the two who come back with an optimistic viewpoint, will look at their particular situation and build upon that, and we see the other 10 men come back with that negative, pessimistic view. But listen, here's the thing. The fact that 10 out of the 12 men, the spies, were pessimists, isn't really all that surprising when we consider and look upon society as a whole. It seems the world is full of both pessimists and optimists. Maybe it could be said we need more optimists than we do pessimists. Because an optimist can bring joy. It can bring someone some encouragement, perhaps, when they really most need it. As a pessimist, though, they'll sometimes just take a situation and be even further of a downer. And we don't need to be down any more than we already are. We need to be optimistic, encouraging, and loving to others. So let us be eternal optimists. And consider the text in chapter 13. The optimist is who we should be. We are people of God. We should be eternal optimists. So stand with me this morning. If you're able to, we stand to simply honor the reading of the word. And we're going to read first in Numbers 13, verses 1 through 3. Then we'll leap over verses 4 through 15 and read then verses 16 through 33. So a couple different sections in the chapter 13 of the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, 
which I am giving to the people of Israel. For each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them for the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Now leap down to verse 16. There's a long list of names given in verses 4 through 15. It says in verse 16, these were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up to the Negev and go up to the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad. And whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So verse 21, the men went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob to Lebohamoth. And they went into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shishai, Talmai, the descendants of Anak were there. It says in parentheses, Heben was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Verse 23, they came to the valley Ishkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Ishkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land and told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Well, then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are a great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word here this morning. And Lord, we just pray over the word, and we ask, Lord, now that you'll guide us, lead us, direct us in time of receiving clarity of the text, but also, Lord, how that can apply to our lives. We look upon Caleb and Joshua and the optimistic view they had, and see also then the other ten men with the pessimistic view, we pray, Lord, today that we receive the message. We would be more optimistic 
perhaps more like Caleb and Joshua. So, Lord, we invite your spirit now to lead and to, uh, and to, to allow us to receive the insight we need, to see how this can apply directly to our lives today. Again, we thank you in advance for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we jump into applying the text, let us start with a very brief explanation of the contextual setting and of the situation. Because in this passage, one you're probably familiar with, we note the command by the Lord to Moses in verses 1 through 3, where we started at the beginning of chapter 13, to send one man, a tribal leader as it is pronounced, from each of the 12 tribes to spy upon the land. Now, we skipped over verses 4 through 15, partly because it just lists each and every man from every tribe, but also because it greatly tests your Hebrew vocabulary and pronunciation for each particular man that's about to go from his particular tribe. But there's a couple that we go back to to kind of note. If you still have the Bible open note in verse 6, that it tells us that Caleb is going. He's of special interest because he is a representative of the tribe of Judah. It also tells us in verse 8 that Hosea, the man chosen from Ephraim, is going. Now, when we pick up the text in verse 16, we see the Hosea, who is Joshua, actually has his name changed to Joshua by Moses. It's not clear, it's not given us to any reason why Moses decides now to change Hosea to Joshua, but yet that's what happens in the text, and it's not explained, so we set it aside and don't ponder it any longer. But do we go back to the text and look now in verses 17 through 20 because we want to begin to look at the specific instructions that Moses gives the men who go to spy upon the land. They are given primarily three responsibilities, three tasks to do. In verses 17 through 20, just paraphrasing it, the first task, the first specific instruction that these men are supposed to do is they travel 500 miles to spy upon the land as they are to first check the readiness of the military of the people of the land. Well, essentially, Moses wants to know whether the people who live there are strong or are weak. That's the first thing that they want to know as they come back about the people who dwell in the land. The second thing is also important. Is there many people there or is they few in number? And then thirdly, Moses gives the men specific instructions to check out the land itself. Is it fertile? Does the land have many crops? What is it like? There's there many trees in there or not? Because they want to know as they're given a chance to go and possess the land. So the spies are given very specific instructions to go. And they are asked ultimately to come back not only with report, but also some of the best of the land if available, some of the best of the fruit. That's specific instructions that Moses gives the men as they're about to leave the part to go spy upon the land. Now the rest of the account after verse 20 is kind of epic because it sets the stage then as the 12 men have been given specific instructions. It sets the stage then for 10 men who returned in with an unfavorable outlook. But only two men of the twelve, namely Joshua and Caleb, find it truly to be the land of promise. Now, as they go and then come back, 
Not surprising is the fact that the spies men brought back the report of the land just the way God described it. The land was described as flowing with milk and honey. Perhaps it was even more grand than they had anticipated. It's notable they did and bring, bring back the fruit in the land. A cluster of grapes large enough for two men to carry upon poles between them. I can't imagine how many grapes that must be. I mean, it's either that that's a large amount of grapes placed upon a pole carried between two men, or the grapes are enormous size, perhaps the size of golf balls or apples. But nonetheless, they get the fruit, they carry it back to the land. And the people receive it. But they go back and they tell the people that the land was everything that they hoped it would be. The spies concluded it was everything it was made out to be. Look at verse 27 once more. They came back and they told him, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit as they brought back the grapes. Now to make sure we're clear and to clarify here for just a moment, this is the promised land. It's also known as the land of Canaan, and it is indeed magnificent. Notably, the spies referred to it as a land flowing with milk and honey. But it's a plush, fertile land, possessing lush hillsides covered with figs and dates and nut trees, and they have grapes and pomegranates. They have, and it looks like everything is there they need. Despite its rather small size, it's an oasis beyond belief. I mean, the size does not complicate any at all. I mean, the size of the land which they're viewing, which they're going to be going to, is only 150 miles long and 60 miles wide. So it's not large by any means whenever you view the land, but has nearly everything they want. Truly a land flowing with milk and honey. Lush, plentiful, fertile land with all the crops they would need. We get the picture that is perfect. It's a paradise. But there's one problem. The problem was the inhabitants of the land at the moment. And we get the picture from the text, they're monsters of men. And the cities then, as the spies begin to describe the cities, were almost impenetrable. Look at verse 28. He said the people, he told me a rosy picture in verse 27, and he says, however, it's like a but. But the people who dwell on the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Note how they describe this place that they're looking upon, not only flowing milk and honey, but now see the problems that might exist. It's look about the people being descendants of Anak, which was a group of abnormally large people. Some suggest the family of Goliath may even be descendants of these people. But further, the spies' pessimistic reports state that, verse 33, that we are like grasshoppers to them. So notice how they came back and gave it just a little bit of initial optimistic view. It indeed was the land flowing with milk and honey. But then the optimism, if they ever truly had any, quickly dissipates and they go to the negative. The pessimistic report that go to look upon the problems that exist. But then along comes Joshua and Caleb, verse 33, verse 30, 
Joshua and Caleb, particularly Caleb here by name, is optimistic. It said Caleb quieted the people. I could just hear that. He said, hey, y'all, just hush. No more negativity. Listen. Caleb quieted the people and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. So we notice the situation now that presents itself. Ten of the twelve men truly believe they cannot overcome it. These people are huge. The cities are large. They're impenetrable. But Joshua and Caleb, particularly Caleb in verse 30, they then try to quiet all the other people having a negative report and are now eager to go possess the land. It's like Caleb is saying, I see great possibilities that exist. So we're seeing the situation as it develops itself in the text, and we ask ourselves, well, what does that mean then? I mean, how can we take this Old Testament text we've probably heard before about sending out the spies to look upon the foreign land, how can we apply that to our lives? Well, the answer is partly is that we can either be like Joshua and Caleb and see the great possibilities that exist that God has in store for us, be eternal optimists. Or we can be like the other ten men, those spies, who truly are pessimists and see only the problems that lie ahead. What that does for us is begin to point out the central theme, if you will, the message. And the central theme then is this. That God offers plenty of reason to be full of optimism. He offers plenty of reason for every one of us in our lives to be full of optimism. And we serve an awesome, powerful, almighty, loving God who cares deeply for each and every one of us. And when we begin to truly reflect upon those great attributes of God, we can begin to realize that he surely does give us plenty of reason to be optimistic upon every and each day that we're blessed to receive. His love, his kindness, his goodness, it should fuel all of us to have an eternal optimistic outlook rather than being one full of pessimism, full of negativity. It gives us plenty of reason to be optimistic. It's interesting here in the text that 10 of 12 tribal leaders missed that great attribute of God, his loving kindness, his goodness. They miss it. But even though they missed that, they truly missed something else as well. Because go back and look. I mean, he, God really gives them, in the very beginning of a reading today, he really gave them every reason to be optimistic. Upon the very first step, they're going to travel 500 miles to look upon this land. But the very first step, before they even took the step, they had a reason to be optimistic, and they missed it. Go back and look at verse 2. It's right there. Moses commissioned by God. He says, send men, God said Moses, to spy on the land of Canaan. Here it comes, which I am giving to the people of Israel. They had it before it even left. They were going to receive it. Despite the opposition, despite what they're going to see, it was going to be given to them. From each of the tribe of the fathers, send a man. 
a chief among them. But notice that God had already assured Moses that they would receive the land. He asked him for 10 or 12 men to go, but he told them they're going to receive the land. Now, we got to presume from that that Moses, sure enough, told the people that he picked his 12 as they got these leaders, he got them all together, and you got to assume that he told them to go look upon the land that God is going to give us, a land flowing of milk and honey. you got to believe that Moses conveyed what was given to him by God. Now, if that's true, if we can make that assumption, then here's the thing, that there is no reason for these men to be pessimistic. There is every reason for them to be optimistic. The land in which they look upon will be theirs. The abundant, fertile land, the pomegranates, the nut trees, the land flowing milk and honey, all that's going to be theirs. I mean, God has assured them of this. But, nonetheless, ten men come back and can only see the negative of the land. 10, 10 of 12, that's 83% of the men see only the troubles. They see only the giants, only the enormous city walls. Why can they see only the negative aspects of the land? Why are they dwelling upon it? Because they are a pessimistic person and then have a pessimistic viewpoint of the glorious land or scene. They can only see the trouble and the work ahead. That's all they see, rather than concentrating the focus on the wonderful promised land that shall be theirs. Now, there's an application right there for all of us. The application is, do we sometimes live our life that way? Dwelling, looking upon the negative rather than the positive? We should look upon every day, every month, every year with an optimistic viewpoint. But it's so easy because of all the life that happens. It's so easy upon the day, the month, the year to negatively and, and pessimistically look upon the day as a is not a blessing. But rather almost as a curse. It's easy to look at life with this evil, wickedness, ugliness that's occurring every day and then turn us into a pessimist. It's, it's easy. It's almost too easy to happen. But now we recognize how truly every day is a blessing. It's like when we wake up in the morning, we should be full of optimism. You should be full of optimism every morning if for no other reason that God has given you that first breath of air and now the coffee pot has made your first cup of coffee, and you can go get it. You've got to start the morning with coffee. It's a blessing. But every day is a blessing. When we wake up in the morning, we can start a brand new day because we've been blessed with another and have the optimistic view that we need. The psalmist in chapter 118, verse 24, maybe gives us the best idea about how we can receive each and every day. The psalmist says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
as you see that verse behind me, listen, you can actually make that verse into a song and sing it on the way to school, on the way to work, or wherever you're going about each and every day. It's a wonderful song. I mean, sing it. If all you ever do is stay home and take care of the kids and clean the house, sing it as you're taking care of those kids, as you're changing them dirty diapers, as you're cleaning that house, the men won't have to clean up themselves. i got to do it for them. Just sing that song. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. It can change your whole perspective. Each day, you know I drive a bus. I do it through all of the school year. During the summer, I'm still driving the bus. Kids can sometimes be rather loud. When you're driving the bus and you have 72 kids, it can get really loud. And there can be a lot of problems. But that's the small thing. I can handle those kids sometimes. Sometimes. But here's the thing. What I've noticed as a bus driver is that other people just don't know how to drive. They just don't. And it's so easy for me to begin to get frustrated when I'm driving that 55-foot bus and someone will get out of my way. I'm thinking, how can you not see a big, bright, yellow bus? But they do get in the way. And it begins to have a little frustration to sit in. But here's what I began to realize. This week, I began to realize I need to memorize and sing every day Psalms 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Did you notice the song? Do you know the song? You know the song. You going to sing it for us? Come up here, Kayla. Come here. Yes, I'm here. Come here, Kayla. We're going to sing the song. This is how it can be done. Each and every day presents its own set of problems. I know I put you completely on the spot, didn't I? All right, you ready? You got the verse? All right. This is the day. That's quite, that's quite not what I had in mind, but that went well. But you can turn the verse into a song. Every day is a blessing from God. Every day. This is the day that we're given us. Let's be glad and rejoice in it. That is the view of an optimist rather than one of a pessimist. But God gives us plenty of reasons now for us to be optimists. And so today we're going to look upon two reasons that really, among many, in which we could be eternal optimists. And the first one then is this. To be eternal optimists sees that we know that Christ's kingdom has not been defeated and is still marching forward. His kingdom has not been defeated and is still marching forward. I mentioned earlier how it's so easy to listen to the news or to watch the news and begin to feel defeated. I mean, the news seems to always give you the bad side of things happening. With COVID, it never told you how many people recovered. It told you how many people are dying, how many people are infected. I mean, it was the negative side of a dreaded disease that we had for so long. It's still not dissipated and completely gone, although it's better. But it's easy then to hear or watch the news with the onslaught of the broadcast bombarding us with murder, with the theft rate, with rape, child abuse, and so much more. It can easily overwhelm anybody. And to that, the fact that society now is standing less and less upon biblical principle. Society at large is accepting abortion. 
They have redefined marriage. There is no longer prayer in schools. Refusal to display the Ten Commandments on public property, public buildings. Even further, then, we should consider the church. If anywhere, the church should be optimistic. But now the church is mirroring the world and is desperately trying to attract people. But people are attending church less and less. Now, for a period of time, people kept saying, that's part of COVID. People don't want to get out yet. They're attending church less because of the COVID-19. However, the truth is the attendance or the lack thereof has been an issue for many years, not necessarily attributable completely to COVID-19. In a few weeks in mid-June, as it seems to always be the case, the Southern Baptist Convention, as we are part of that, will have their annual convention meeting in June, as it is each year. This year happens to be in Nashville. But each year, it is noted during the meeting that the membership for the Southern Baptist Convention for churches like ours, that attendance is declining. Listen to the numbers. Membership within the SBC reached its peak in 2005 with 16.6 million people. That's a lot of people for one denomination or convention as we are described. But in 2019, look at the results. It had fell to 14.5 million. Now the numbers are just now coming in for 2020 as it convened the next couple of weeks. But Life Ray Research has already received enough information with a poll they've taken, which will indicate it'll be the largest membership decline in a hundred years of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now that should be alarming that people are leaving the church at such rates. But if we take an optimistic view, we could maybe look upon those numbers, those statistics, and maybe we could say, well, maybe people are just tired of the Baptist and just going to a different church. Well, I mean, I like that optimistic view, but I'm also a realist. And realistically, the fact is that Churches in general, not just Baptist churches, are declining and actually closing more than they're opening. Just a couple of weeks ago, Religion News posted on their website, on May 26 this year, it posted this, that more Protestant churches closed in 2019 than opened, continuing a decades, not decade, decades, long congregational slide that is only expected to accelerate, which indicates that it's not just Baptist churches, that all the churches in general are starting to decline in attendance and has been for many, many, many years. COVID did, maybe didn't help, but it wasn't due to COVID. So with the rapid decline in attendance and with the alarming rates in regard to the church's closing, some people then believe the future is bleak. Some people even claim this gives evidence that the church has completely lost its influence on the culture. And would even suggest and say that Satan is winning. Now that's a pessimistic view. If you look at all the things happening and you look upon the results and say simply this means Satan is winning, that's a view of a pessimist. But here's what the optimist would say. Satan is not winning and he's not going to win. And we need messages like this in churches throughout this land 
They remind us that God's plan, Christ's kingdom, is not defeated. It is not. Satan does not win. His kingdom, God's kingdom, will reign supreme, which means then that we have plenty of reason to be eternally confident and optimistic. Do not let Satan steal your joy. Be an eternal optimist. Christ's kingdom has not, will not be defeated. That's the first reason we have to be an eternal optimist. There's many reasons. The second reason is this. The trajectory of this world and that of believers is not the same. The trajectory of this world and that of us as believers is not the same. There's an article in 2015 I received from the Christian Post. Michael Brooks was the author. He wrote that the worldly view is fueling at the heart of modern society that does not promote a trajectory of humans flourishing. And there are a lot of big words and stuff in there, but what it basically means is that the world's view is that life cannot get any better than it is right now. The world's view is that life will not get any better than what it is today. So they say, capture your moment. Live it up. Party. Be happy. Be merry because this is as good as it gets. That's the world's view. They say, obtain for yourself whatever you deserve because you've endured this day and you deserve it. Which, you know, maybe admittedly is not a bad philosophy because maybe that is a side of they're being optimistic. But although it could be something we could listen to for a moment, it is badly misguided. Because the world really has this obtained for yourself, full of greed, self-absorption, ego, self-interest, pride, self-satisfaction attitude. They further add in that life is fleeting. So they say, man, just get what you can and get what you get today because it won't get any better than it is right now. And they have little or no concern for others in the midst of getting their own. In essence, there's a worldly philosophy that certainly promotes that today is the day. Do not rejoice in it, but get what you can, because this is good as it gets. Which tends to suggest that those people then think there's no afterlife. We as believers should know that the trajectory, the path that we're on in the world is not the same. Because they're telling us the path that we're on by coming to church and being Christians is void of meanings. We're not on that kind of path of being void of meanings. Life is not meaningless. And yes, there is afterlife. There is eternal life. You know, we live in the world, but we are not of this world. You know, Peter and Paul both captured that quite well. Peter had mentioned in 1 Peter 2.11 that we're strangers and aliens. By one translation or another translation says that we're sojourners and pilgrims. But yet at the same time, Paul declared in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that all of us are in this world because we're ambassadors for Christ. But we see that we have a hope and promise to cling to which helps us to have the optimistic view because we have a promise 
that there is an afterlife. There is a promise. This is not as good as it gets. There is a promise of a heavenly home. You know, believers know that we are here for only a little while, and there's much greater days ahead of us. We know our time on earth is just a small blip upon a screen, and there is an eternity awaiting for all of us of heavenly bliss. This is not as good as it gets. There's so much more that's better for all of us that's waiting for us. We are not on the same path as the world. We are on different paths, different trajectories. And the fact that there is better days ahead for all of us should fuel optimism for us. Our gracious, loving God gives us a reason to be full of optimism. The fact that we have this heavenly home being prepared for all of us that we shall enjoy someday. But maybe, maybe this morning as we gather here, we're like those ten men, those ten spies who can only focus on the troubles and the problems. You know, as the ten men were looking upon the land flowing with milk and honey, they really could not see that. They saw a small segment of that, perhaps, by noting the text, but they saw more of the problems. They saw more of the troubles. They saw these giants. They saw these big cities. They fortified cities and the walls. They saw that more than they saw the land flowing with milk and honey. So they brought back a negative report. They focused upon the problems. They didn't have the optimism. Maybe we could say they didn't have the faith. You know, it's not easy living by faith. But listen to me, faith fuels optimism. We're so dependent upon our senses at times to define what is real. So much so that we'd rather focus upon what we can see and feel and taste and miss everything else. We see, we feel, we and everything that we see, do we feel, do we, it just seems like trouble and it's chaos. Everything is a complete mess. We can get focused upon that. And if we begin to get focused on that, it gives us a negative and pessimistic view. That was the case for these ten men. They began to focus on only that aspect of what they were looking at. It's so easy to fall into that trap of being negative and being a pessimist. It's so easy indeed that we need a message like this at times during troubling days to remind us of God's love, of his promises, so that we can realize the future is certainly not bleak. The future is not hopeless. It's not barren. It's not desolate. The future really is beautiful for all of us. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you have plenty of reason to see the future is beautiful. In the text today, we pointed out rather early that God told the Israelites, certainly told Moses, that the promised land is going to be theirs. It was rich. It was fertile. But so is ours. Our future is rich. Not only that, I mean, God promised them that the bountiful land would be theirs, 
And, and, and so we know then also likewise that there is a beautiful place to be prepared for each and every one of us. John 14 tells us so. A beautiful place to be prepared for each and every one of us. So what I'm saying really is this. It, it takes having clear vision. Clear vision to see the future that is optimistic for us. There is hope and faith fuels an optimistic, clear vision that we need. Because the problem with the ten spies, the ten men who gave a pessimistic view when they got back of the land is that they were wearing stained glasses. That was blurring their vision. They didn't have the clarity. They didn't have the clear glasses. They were stained glasses giving them blurred vision. Instead of the promises, they were seeing troubles. Right in the fertile land and abundance of rich possessions, they saw the giants and the fortified cities, which gave a lot of fear. In short, really what we're concluding and saying is this. It made those men easy targets to forget about God's promises. It made them really easy targets to forget about the promises that God gives to all of us, particularly to them, which then for them men and for anybody who looks and forgets upon God's promises makes them an easy target for the enemy, for Satan. Listen, Satan would rather you see trouble ahead than promises in God's love and help. He'd rather you have a pessimistic view of things than one of optimism. He would rather you see the difficulty rather than God's power to guide you through anything that happens to you. Now listen, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that living a life of faith each and every day is easy. Living a Christian walk each and every day in our world is not easy. But yet by persevering and choosing to be optimistic, focusing on the promises that God gives to us rather than the problems, it helps the tendency to be blind and fall for the way of the world of the negativity and the pessimistic view that it wants you to receive. So wouldn't you rather be an optimist? Wouldn't you rather be an eternal optimist starting each and every day with joy? Being completely free of the negativity? Wouldn't you rather wake up knowing that this is a beautiful day the Lord has made? Let us rejoice in it. He made the day just for you. You can have an eternal, optimistic view by just stepping forward and accepting Christ as Lord. That's the first step. Maybe that clearly needs to be said today. That the first step of being eternally optimistic is the fact that you receive Jesus Christ as Lord. So maybe today the only thing left to say is this. Make that step. Make that initial optimistic step forward today. Step on that path to becoming an eternal optimist by receiving Jesus Christ today. He's waiting for you. Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this message. We thank you, Lord, that you can fuel us with optimism. We can live by faith, Lord. We can live with hope knowing there are many promises that you've given to us, which can then make us eternal optimists in this land. 
are full of pessimists and negativity. I pray for all of us today then to receive this message in its entirety to know that we can leave here today without any negativity, walk into this mean, cruel, rude world and be optimist and to be loving. So we thank you for how you paved the way for all of us to be saved. Thank you, Lord, for all who come here today. Keep those, Lord, away from us today. Keep them safe and bring them back. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.